You know, one of the things that brings people together more than anything else is uh, food. And when we eat together, we're actually sharing life together. We're eating the same life-giving substance together. And when you sit down and you have a meal with somebody, uh, you begin to share more than just the physical life that that meal brings, but you begin to share a spiritual side of life as well. You begin to learn from one another, and perhaps if you're seated with someone who is in a, uh, a greater position than you, you have a lot that you can learn. Well, I want to invite you today and uh, for the next four weeks to have dinner with Jesus. We're going to uh, see some of the experiences the people had when they encountered Jesus having a meal together with him. And so whether Jesus was the guest or the host, and at least one time he was the cook, people's lives were always changed when they had dinner with Jesus. And so I invite you back each Sunday during this series. Today, we're going to talk about perhaps one of the most important and most famous dinners that Jesus had. And I want you to think about some of the most famous people in history that uh, you've learned over the years uh, and what they're remembered for. You think about someone like Michelangelo and what he's remembered for. And uh, for most of us, we would think of his incredible artwork, perhaps his work even as a scientist. Uh, for a few people, we would know that he was one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and I don't know how I'm going to be remembered, but I would love to be remembered as someone who has never seen an episode of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Very proud of that fact. But you think about Michelangelo, you think about someone like Steve Jobs. And he's obviously known for the, being one of the creators of Apple computers. You think of someone like Mother Teresa working with the poor in India. She's known for that. Someone like Alfred Nobel, just the way I pronounce his last name, you know that he is the founder of the Nobel Prize, uh, an award, a reward actually, given to outstanding contributions to humanity in different fields. And I want to ask this question of you. What do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to be remembered for? I, I, I want you to imagine, uh, just if you would for a minute, that you received just a, a terrible diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis from your doctor. Nothing could be done to save your life. You literally have hours to live. And so you invite your closest loved ones over for a meal. This will be your last time together. And this is where you break the news to them. And in the midst of all the sorrow and the sadness and the weeping and the tears, there's a very important message that you want to bring to your loved ones. And it's this. This is how I want to be remembered when I'm gone. And what would be the, the answer that you would give to that question, how you want to be remembered. I think for a lot of us, we'd want to be remembered as someone who uh, loved his or her family. Or maybe some of us would say, I want to be remembered as someone who cared about people, or someone that brought a smile to people's faces or made people laugh. Someone here might want to be remembered as someone who is very generous with his or her money or or someone who would do anything for anybody, you know, a true servant of servants, who would do anything for anyone, even a stranger. Or maybe, if you thought about the question, you would think about a specific event uh, 
a specific time in your life that you would want people to remember. Maybe it was your graduation from school, if you were the first one in your family to graduate from high school or graduate from college, and that's a big deal, and you want people to remember that about you. Or maybe it was something to do with your career. Some of you may have spent 30 or 40 years with the exact same company, and you want to be remembered for that or, or in the same field as a, as a plumber or an electrician or as a teacher, blessing other people. And so you want to be remembered in that way. Maybe it would be your wedding. Your wedding was such an incredible moment in your life that you'd want everyone to think about it every time they thought about you. Or maybe it's the birth or the raising of your grandkids. You really don't care about being remembered yourself, but uh, other than the fact that you invested your life in those kids or those grandkids, and you want to be remembered that way. Some of you here may have experienced a 50th wedding anniversary, and it was very special to you because all your friends and family came and you got to experience, uh, they got to experience a part of your joy of being married for 50 years. Whatever it is that you think, this is the one thing that I want people to remember me for, I can pretty safely say that nobody here would say to their family and friends, Here's what I want to be remembered for. I want you to remember my death. None of us would actually say that. None of us would even think that. Because that would be very strange, wouldn't it be? I mean, I want you to remember the very way in which I died. I want you to remember the agony that I went through. I want you to remember the pain, the heartache. And I want you to remember that my death ultimately was because of you. I mean, none of us would say that, would we? But what's interesting to me is that is exactly the one thing that Jesus wanted us to remember about him. It was as if he was saying, look, I'm not angry about it. I'm not blaming you. I've accepted my fate, and I, I walk willingly down this dark pathway. I willingly give up my life for your benefit. I simply ask that you remember one thing about me. For centuries, people will remember my birth, but I do not ask you to remember that. People will remember my teachings, but that is not what is most important. People will remember the miracles that I performed, but neither is that what I ask you to remember. Remember my death, that I gave up my body for you, that I poured out my blood for you. If you have a Bible... Turn to Luke chapter 22. We'll look at verses 1 through 20 today. This passage is indeed, we call it the Last Supper. And we read in verse 1 of Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover was approaching. 
In verse 2, we read, The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. You see, the religious and the political leaders of Jesus' day, they were threatened by the popularity of Jesus. He was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their authority, to their standing among the people. And so they were actively taking suggestions how they might do two things, put him to death and yet do it in a way that, where they would not have to face the wrath of the people. This would be quite a trick for them to do, for them to pull off. We read in verse 3, And Satan entered into Judas, who is called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And then in verse 4 we read, And he went away, and he discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, verse 5 says, to, and they agreed to give him money. In verse 6 we read, so he consented, and he began seeking a good opportunity to betray Jesus to them apart from the crowd. I want you to consider something for a minute, that Satan had a plan. Satan's plan was to kill Jesus. And I also want you to consider this, that Jesus had a plan. His plan was to give up his life. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, that's the same plan. Satan and Jesus had the same plan for Jesus to die. Well, not exactly. You see, the plans of both Satan and Jesus, it did involve Jesus' death, but Satan and Jesus had different intentions, and their plans involved different hoped outcomes. You see, in baseball, the defense wants to get an out. It's part of the game. But the offense may be willing to give up an, or, an out in order to advance a runner or even allow a runner to score. It's called a sacrifice. It means paying a price for a greater reward. And see, Satan, in his plan, he wanted to kill Jesus because he intended Jesus to remain dead. Satan mistakenly thought that if Jesus died, that Jesus would forever be held in bondage. The outcome, the intended outcome of, G of, of Satan's plan was supposed to be Jesus remaining dead and remaining in the place of the dead for all eternity. But Jesus had other plans. Jesus was willing to be put to death because he intended his death to pay the penalty for the sins of of humanity. And the intended outcome of the death of Jesus was something that Satan never considered. That Jesus would announce to the spirits in prison that he is Lord over all. That Jesus would rise from the dead. 
that Jesus would ascend to heaven as Lord over all that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that one day Jesus would return as king and judge over the living and the dead, over the spirits and even over Satan himself, and that Jesus on that day would cast all unbelievers and cast Satan and cast even death itself into the lake of fire. Did Satan want Jesus dead? Yes, but Satan messed up. Satan failed to understand the full plan of Jesus, and he failed to understand the power of Jesus to accomplish his plan. Verse 7, Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Let me talk just briefly about Passover. Passover is the night of the death of the firstborn in Egypt. That was the original Passover. And each Israelite family was instructed to kill a lamb and to spread its blood on the doorframe of the house. And this would be a sign to the Lord as he went through the land of Egypt, not to kill the firstborn of that house, but rather to pass over that house. And so the Passover tradition, the Passover meal, would become an annual tradition, a ceremony, a commemoration for the salvation that God brought to his people. The idea of a perfect, an innocent lamb being sacrificed and its blood being poured out as a substitute for God's people Well, that idea was certainly on the mind of John the Baptist earlier in Jesus' ministry. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, and he famously made this remark, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, in the very next few verses of Luke 22, we're going to see the meticulous planning of the Last Supper that Jesus would have with his disciples before his death. In verses 8 and 9, we read, And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you enter the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of that house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. In verses 14 through 16, we read, When the hour had come... He reclined at the table and his apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus used two of the greatest visual aids that would ever be used to help commemorate his death. And at this time, I'm going to ask our deacons if they would 
come up here to the front. And as they make their way to the front, here's what we're going to do. During the next few minutes, uh, there will be some music playing, and I will invite you or a representative from your family to come and to take one of these elements uh, that is here in one of these trays and take that back to your seat. These elements have two seals on them, and at the right time during this sermon, I'll ask you to peel off the first seal, and it will expose the wafer, the bread, and we'll partake of that, and then later we'll partake of the juice after you tear off the second seal, at my instructions. And so if you are unable to come to the front, um, our deacons would be glad to serve you there. We would just ask that you'd raise your hand. And so at this time, I'm going to ask that you'd stand from where you are and come to the front and receive the elements. You know, these two elements, the bread and the, the cup, are two of the greatest visual aids that Jesus ever used. You think about through his ministry, all the different types of uh, ways that he taught people. He talked about mustard seeds and used them. He talked about salt and light. He used birds as an illustration and lilies and vine branches and yeast and dough and coins and buildings. He used everything that he could find to, to talk about his teachings, to get his teachings across. But now, Jesus uses these two magnificent and brilliant visual aids these two symbols are absolutely universal. They would continue to be used by Jesus' followers in every culture and in every age, and they are the bread and the cup. And we read in verses 17 and 18, When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And in verse 19 we read, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks. Let me pause right here for just a minute. For centuries, whenever the Passover was celebrated, the bread that was received at the Passover had a very specific meaning. The bread of the Passover had to be unleavened bread. This was God's command in Exodus 13. What is unleavened bread? Unleavened bread has uh, agents, no agents like yeast or baking soda. Usually bread has this. Usually bread will have something inside it, some type of leavening agent that makes the bread rise and makes it a little bit softer. And, and so that's what leavening agents do. Yeast, for example, causes fermentation in the bread, and it, the yeast will spread throughout the entire loaf of dough, and it affects every part of the bread. Well, in the Bible, yeast is a symbol of sin, because when sin enters our lives, it spreads to every part. No part of our lives are unaffected by sin. And so when God instituted the Passover meal, He instructed Israel to use only unleavened bread. Unleavened bread stood for leaving Egypt. Unleavened bread stood for leaving slavery. No longer would Israel be enslaved. Israel was free. However, there was another kind of slavery that Israel had to be guarded against, and that was slavery to sin. And so leaven represented a life of oppression 
that they no longer were to experience. And by eating unleavened bread during the Passover meal, Israel was reminded every year that their old life was in the past. They were starting a brand new life with God, and their old life could not hold sway over them any longer. But now, in Luke 22, Jesus was partaking of a Passover meal with his disciples, and he gave the bread an entirely new meaning. The bread represents his body. And just as the bread had no leaven, Jesus' body had no sin. And so now I would ask you to take the Lord's Supper element and remove the top seal, the purple seal. And this should expose the wafer. And after I read verse 19, please partake of the wafer of bread with me. In verse 19, we read it in its entirety. And when Jesus had taken some bread and had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice that Jesus did not say, This is my body, which was taken. Rather, he said, this, was my, this is my body, which is given for you. Jesus' life was not taken from him, but he willingly laid it down. Everything that Jesus did, especially near the end of his life, intentionally led to his death. Jesus said in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And so in addition to the bread, Jesus used another wonderful symbol, and it is the cup. The cup would represent his blood. And just like the bread of the Passover the blood had meaning in the Hebrew Scriptures. In Exodus 24, verse 8, we read this, So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Ancient Israel had a covenant with God that was confirmed in blood. A covenant is the most serious type of contractual agreement between two parties. Some covenants are conditional and some covenants are unconditional. And in the Old Testament, God famously made covenants with Noah, He made covenants with Abraham, with Moses, with David, but now Jesus establishes a brand new covenant with us. And just like the covenants of old, this new covenant requires the shedding of blood. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, we read, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But this time, with this new covenant, it would not be an animal 
whose blood would be shed, but it would be the blood of the unique Son of God. Jesus' blood was shed when he was whipped. Jesus' blood was shed when a crown of thorns was placed upon his head. Jesus' blood was shed when his hands were pierced during the crucifixion. Jesus' blood was shed when his feet were pierced. Jesus' blood was shed when his side was pierced with a lance. This represents the blood that Jesus shed for you and me. I'd ask you to take the Lord's Supper element and remove the next seal. And after I read verse 20, please partake of the cup with me. In verse 20 we read, And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Again, please notice that Jesus said that the pouring out of his blood, he said it was for you. Jesus sacrificed his life for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. The death of Jesus on the cross was a substitutionary one. He bought forgiveness for you if you'll receive it. If you want to receive the forgiveness of Christ, all you must do is believe. Jesus said this about himself, Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. If today you are ready and willing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust him, to follow him as Lord, as boss, as king over your life, you believe that he rose from the dead, then I want to give you some options how you can respond today. One way you can respond, if you would like to talk to me further about following Christ, is you can text me the word follow at 806-375-4240. I'd be glad to get back with you and speak with you about your relationship with God and see how I can help you begin to follow Christ. Another way to respond is this. In a moment, we're going to sing a song of response, and as soon as the song begins, you can come up to the front, for I'll be standing, and we can talk further there. If today you're ready to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd ask that you respond to him now. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you that he was willing to go. He was willing to pay that terrible penalty to purchase us, to forgive us of our sins. I pray that we would, would act in, in response with a heart of thanksgiving and with a heart of belief. Father, if there's one person here who today is ready to follow Jesus, I pray 
that they will make that response known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.